I appreciate the work that these worship leaders put in to their week so that we can sing with complete abandon truths like that. It's been a good morning together. Please open your copy of Scripture to 1 Peter chapter 2 this morning. And you were handed a handout when you entered the building, I believe, so help you track along with what we're going to be studying this morning. If you need a copy of Scripture, if you'd like to borrow one, we have copies of uh, the same version I'm preaching out of. Uh, we have those under the chairs in front of you on the, each aisle. There's a few copies, so help yourself. And let me just say this, by the way, if you're our guest today and you don't own a Bible, well, we want to change that today, too. And uh, if you're our guest today, please stop by the Information Center right after the service. And uh, we have some folks here that will give you a gift that will hold coffee. And also mention to them you'd like your free copy of Scripture that we promised you, and they'll give you a copy of God's Word for you to take home. It's yours. I need to get you to channel your, your past self right now. I want you to think back to your childhood, and I want to try to help you do that right now. I want to remind you of some childhood rhymes, and I want you to finish them, or at least the next line. For example, ring around the rosies, you're one for one, good. I'm not sure if you'll know this one, but this was right up there in my childhood. I'm rubber, you're glue. Whatever you say to me bounces off and sticks to you. Okay, good. If you don't know that one, you need to go back and memorize that one. How about this one? Red Rover, Red Rover. Sim Jim right over, right? (laughs) Who said that? Was that Steve? No, it was Joe. Okay, Joe, I'm coming for you. Or if you're in a swimming pool on a July summer afternoon in your childhood, if someone said, Marco, what would you say? Polo, good. How about this one? I spy with my eye. Good. I needed you to do that one because I'd forgotten that one. Thank you. Here's one, though, that all of us should be able to recall. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. The version I learned was this. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but names will never hurt me. You know, we've done a biographical study of the Apostle Peter before we came to studying what he wrote in 1 Peter. But after we got to know Peter from the Gospels, I bet Peter would want to rewrite the last line of that sticks and stones one. I can imagine, based on what I know about Peter, from his life, but also what he's written so far in 1 Peter, I bet he would rewrite it with these words. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but names will only embolden me. I could see him writing it that way. Because Peter, even here just in chapter 2, has been calling Christians names, as we said last week. What are the names he's been calling us Christians? In chapter 2, verse 2, he called us hungry babies, and that had something to speak about our relationship with his word. He called us another name that we studied last week. We saw it in verse 5. He called us living stones, living stones that are being used to build a spiritual house. And when he called us living stones, that spoke to us being God's people. But we're going to see this morning in verse 9 that he's going to call us a third name. He's going to call us a chosen people. 
And this will speak to our great privilege. And then we'll see, Lord willing, in our next study, in verse 11, he's going to call us a fourth name. He's going to call us temporary travelers. We'll see that in verse 11 in our next study, as I said. But it's important for you to realize now, as we get ready to come to verse 11 in our next study, he's closing out using bookends, if you will, what he started in chapter 1, verse 1. He called us travelers. And then at the end of, or in, in, in chapter 2, verse 11, he's going to call us travelers again. That's going to bring the front part of this epistle to a conclusion. And it's going to launch us into the rest of the epistle with obligations. Sounds a lot like how Paul writes. We'll spend more time on that in our next study. But I want to focus on number three, this third name that Peter calls us Christians. Look at verse 9 with me. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. He calls us chosen people. Now, I find it absolutely necessary and intentional that I want to remind you again that Peter is writing to a group of believers who are feeling the front waves, the initial waves of persecution, but it's only going to get worse in their lifetime. It's going to intensify within the Roman kingdom to such a degree, the Roman Empire, that's to such a degree that it will cost many of these believers their lives, including the author of this epistle. He will die in this wave of persecution that he's warning them about. And it's very important that you keep this in mind every message we study out of 1 Peter. Because Peter's going to insist on calling attention to this in every chapter. And I want you to feel the weight of that because something we have to discuss today is going to be dependent on the fact that you remember this reality of persecution. You say, where does he mention the persecution in chapter 1? It's in verse 6. He says, in this you greatly rejoice, in other words, the security of your salvation, even though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. He's going to touch on it again in chapter 2. Look at verse 12. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in a day of visitation. He's going to bring it up again in chapter 2. Look at verse 19. For this finds favor, if for the sake of conscience toward God, a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. For what credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? But if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. You say he brings this up in chapter 3? He sure does. Look at verse 9. 
Do not return evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead, for you were called for this very purpose of suffering that you might inherit a blessing. And again in chapter 3, look at verse 13. Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And do not fear their intimidation. Do not be troubled. But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. And keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. For it is better if God should will it that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh but made alive in the Spirit. But then when we get to chapter 4... The volume continues to increase. He starts out chapter 4 with these words of warning. Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose. Because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. But then I want to call your attention to verse 12. Beloved, Do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of his glory you may rejoice with exaltation. If you're reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. You say it comes up in chapter 5. It sure does. Look at chapter 5, verse 5. At the end it says, God is opposed to the proud, gives grace to the humble. There's a humility needed in a suffering environment. Humble, verse 6, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. You say, what's their anxiety? What are they worrying about? What should be obvious at this point in the epistle? It's their suffering. It's either what they're already experiencing or what they see right at the door. And so he says in verse 8, Be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Why? Because your adversary, the devil, now we know who's behind it all, right? Prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. But resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. But after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. His final words on suffering at the end of the epistle that starts with a warning and it's it's an incessant warning throughout the epistle and it ends on that triumphant note. Now I, I remind you of those passages so that you'll keep them connected not only in the margins of your Bible but in your thinking as you hear every verse in this epistle. When you hear 
uh, Peter discuss our obligation to the secular authorities over us, you need to keep this theme in mind. As you hear Peter write about wives married to disobedient husbands, you need to keep this in mind. As you hear Christ, through the pen of Paul, talk about the way to suffer right and the way to suffer wrong, keep this in mind. As you hear When we crest over into chapter 4 and chapter 5, your obligations in the church and even the leadership's obligation in the church, you need to keep in mind the background of his suffering. This is his theme. You say, why are you spending so much time on this? Because it's against the backdrop of suffering for the sake of Christ and the gospel that he writes these two verses we're going to look at briefly this morning. You say, this is important for us. I have a question for you. Do you think we're on the cusp of of suffering right now in this country here in the West? You think we are? By the way, our brothers and sisters have been bleeding in other nations, in other parts of the globe for a long time. But now we're being told if we use the wrong pronouns or say there's more than, or there's no more than two genders, we can be guilty perhaps of, uh, of, of crime. When we say there's a, there's a, a singular definition of marriage, when we say there's only one right uh, relationship with God expressed in, as expressed in, in Christianity in the Bible that allows you to access God for eternity, when we say we believe John 14, 6, that Jesus alone is the way, the truth, and the life, we are being bigoted? Yeah, it's right at our door. The shadow is falling over us. And some under the sound of my voice find this persecution not just out there at Walmart or Target. They might be feeling it in their workplace and they have to tiptoe. But some of them, listen, perhaps some of you feel this in your own home where a loved one has walked away from the faith or has never even approached the faith. And they continue on down the cultural downgrade, down the cultural rapids towards the fall, the waterfall, the eternal waterfall, eternal wrath of God. While you are supposed to be standing your ground with grace. There's some of you, you don't need to think of work or the marketplace, it's your own living room. And it's against that backdrop, I'm glad that we come to verses 9 and 10 this morning. Because in the face of rejection and persecution, being part of God's people delivers three blessings, or better, three privileges that you need to grab a hold of today. If you're losing your footing, if you're losing your grip as you suffer, if you're starting to question things yourself and wondering, is this really all true, or have I been too hard-nosed in my commitment to Scripture. If you find yourself sliding, your, your foot is giving way, grab hold of these three privileges. It'll turn you into an optimistic sufferer. Sometimes it's good to stand out. What are these privileges? There are three of these privileges, three of these blessings. And we have them here in verses 9 and 10 of First Peter chapter 2. Look at these verses. For you, or but you, 
are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, and a people for God's own possession. See, what's the first privilege that will anchor me when I'm suffering in the workplace, in my cul-de-sac, in my living room? When unbelievers are reacting against me, when unbelievers are playing the Pied Piper, playing every card on their deck to put pressure on me to compromise, to lighten up a little bit, to open my perspective some, to want to not make waves in the culture. What's a privilege that will keep you anchored? Number one, it sets up an amazing contrast. Your standing out sets up an amazing contrast. Did you notice the first two words in the English translation I'm preaching from? Because in the Greek translation, in the Greek text, these words are emphatic. I mean, you look at their construction and their placement in this sentence, and it's very emphatic. But you. You say, what's what's so emphatic about that? Well, it's setting up a contrast to something that we just saw in the last few verses. Remember these verses? In verse 7, there are 7 and 8, there are two types of people. There are believers and disbelievers, disobedient. It says, this precious value of Christ, the cornerstone, then, is for you who believe. But for those who disbelieve, and these are the ones who are doing their persecuting, for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, for they stumble because they are disobedient to the word and to this doom they were also appointed. There's two sides to the coin of their, of their identity. They are disbelievers and therefore disobedient. And God has appointed for such to face his eternal wrath unless mercy intervenes. And so when we come to verse 9, in those first two words, suddenly we're reminded that, oh, this is quite a contrast here. Verse 8 was describing not only the character and the posture of an unbeliever in a God-hostile culture then and now, but it's also showing their destiny, judgment, and wrath. And then we come to verse 9. But you, but you, this sets up an amazing contrast. And let me just carefully emphasize something right here. If you miss this contrast, listen, in Peter's intent, you will misunderstand this verse. This contrast is key to verse 9. Many of my friends, who would be what's called covenant theologians, would come to this verse, and this is their silver bullet in their system, or one of them. They say verse 9's main purpose is to just demonstrate that the New Testament church has replaced, superseded, the nation of Israel in God's plan. And although Jews will be saved someday, it will never be a national thing. They'll just be coming into the church and, and his plans for, old te- or for the nation of Israel are finished. And they find in this verse their go-to text, one of their main go-to texts. If you come to verse 9 just wanting to accomplish that with verse 9, you have divorced yourself 
from the context and intent of Peter, period. I'll say it as strongly as I can. This verse is about a contrast going on. It's not about a system of interpretation. It's interesting. Peter here has his Bible open, which is the Old Testament, as he writes this, and he's quoting from it. I want you to hold your finger here, and I want to give you a preview of the texts that are in his mind and coming through his pen. Go with me to Exodus chapter 19. Exodus chapter 19. If you know your Old Testament and this book in particular, the Ten Commandments are coming in chapter 20. So what's going on in verse 19 is before they even were handed the two tablets, the two the two laws, or the two stones with the laws written by the finger of God that would have to be rewritten after chapter 20. In chapter 19, I just want you to hear this wording. You'll hear it again from Peter. Chapter 19, verse, uh, I'll start out with verse 4. Verse 3. Moses went up to God, and the Lord called him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the sons of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. Keep those fresh in your mind and go over to Deuteronomy. The book of Deuteronomy to the right. Verse or chapter 7. I'm going to read verses 6 through 8. For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. The Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any of the peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your forefathers, the Lord brought you out by a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt." Okay, I want to take you to one more passage. We could go to several. This is obviously a common um, motif in the Old Testament and God's dealing with the nation of Israel. Go with me to Isaiah chapter 43. Isaiah chapter 43. I just want to call your attention to two verses here. We'll go back to 1 Peter. Isaiah chapter 43. Verse 20 and 21. The beasts of the field will glorify me, the jackals and the ostriches, because I have given waters in the wilderness and rivers in the desert to give drink to my chosen people, the people whom I formed for myself, will declare my praise. You got that in the back of your mind now? Now come back to 1 Peter chapter 2 and listen to verse 9. Again. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him 
who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. What is going on here? Some people say, well, he's saying here that the church replaces all the promises that he made to Israel. It's the church supersedes, or they're supersessionists, they call them. Um, Israel's over, and now it's the church. You say, well, how, I say, well, how do you say that? And you say, well, because he's, he's comparing them. And that you might say back to me, if you're not in agreement with me, well, why is he even reaching for those passages to talk about the church? And my answer to that is 2 Timothy 3.16. It's all he has to reach for. When Paul wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3, verse 16, he says, All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Right? You know that verse. But Paul and Timothy's ministry was not just to Jews, but it was predominantly to Gentiles. And Paul's saying, even at the end of his life, as we disciple Gentiles and help them understand their place in God's plan, we look back at the Old Testament and find great help from the language that is used there to describe the obligations of the church now. Both are given by inspiration of God. He's reaching back because he's allowed to. Here's a fact I want you to understand here. The New Testament church does not replace the Old Testament nation of Israel. You got it? See, how can you make that choice? I just want to, without belaboring this point, I, want to, I do want to prod at you just a little bit in your thinking on this. I like what Dr. Edwin Blum in the Expositor's Bible Commentary says about this very point. He says, this verse does not mean that the church is Israel or even that the church replaces Israel in the plan of God. This is not, these are my words now, this is not an issue of replacement. This is an issue of comparison. Paul will do this in Romans chapter 11. He's going to compare the church with Israel. Dr. Raymer puts it this way, and Charles Ryrie agrees, by the way, similarity does not mean identity. I could tell you about two vehicles I had. I sold one because I bought a second one to follow it up. It was the vehicle I was driving around Virginia Beach. You say, well, tell me about the similarities between those two vehicles. I could say they both had four wheels. They both could do the speed limit. They both had air conditioning. They both could carry mulch to your yard if you needed it to. Uh, both of them were comfortable to sit in. Both went on vacations with my family. You say, well, I mean, they had the same things in common. It must be the same vehicle. No, one was a maroon minivan. And the other one was a Ford F-150, which had, and it had uh, tires that were jacked up. It was, I bought it on Craigslist. It was really tough. But far from being the same. If I just tell you how they're similar, it doesn't mean that they are one and the same. Dr. Hebert, in his excellent and technical commentary in the, in the Greek, in 1 Peter, says, all of these designations that Paul, or that Peter, brings from uh, uh, the, the Pentateuch and the prophets to describe the church, a chosen race, royal priesthood, holy nation." and a people for God's own possession, it's very important that in the Greek, there are no definite articles with them. It's not the chosen people. The 
royal priesthood. He's not, the, the, the the is gone. There's no definite article. You say, what does that mean? It means the attention of Peter is focused on the character, not the identity. There's something that was true with God's intent of the nation of Israel that is also true for God's people post-Pentecost, the church. It's also interesting to note that the Old Testament passages that Peter's reaching for are not predictive passages, they're not prophetic passages, they are descriptive. So what does all this mean? I like what one more commentator said, William MacDonald, instead of being an earthly race with common ancestry and distinct physical characteristics... Christians are a heavenly people with a divine parentage and spiritual resemblances. Just as Israel was to stand out and to be a drawing card to the nations. It's on our watch now as the church. And there's Jews and Gentiles in us. But make no mistake about it. Though in the body of Christ today, since Pentecost... There's Gentiles, there's Jews, but just because there's Jews doesn't mean that there's still not a future plan for the nation of Israel in the future. There is going to be a thousand year literal reign of Jesus on a Davidic throne in the land. We can't spiritualize that throne or that land and say it's being spiritually fulfilled in the church. At least you better not come to this first to try to do that. I agree with Wearsby and Hebert that the church parallels Israel. It does not replace it. Now I have to remind you, what are these first two words in the verse? You ready? But you. His goal is to set up an amazing contrast. Just think about it now. Just think about it. You, today, are chosen by God. We not only get that in verse 9, but Peter's been spraying that out all the way up to this point. You're chosen by God, contrasted to those who disbelieve and disobedient, in verse 8, are doomed by God. It's either chosen or doomed. Another contrast is that you have access to God. We've seen now twice in this chapter that you're a priesthood. You have access to God versus being separated from God. He says uh, you're a people for God's own possession, or you're a holy nation. Excuse me, this is the third contrast. You are identified with God instead of being an enemy of God. And then there's a fourth contrast. You are treasured by God. You are a people for God's own possession instead of being rejected by God. You get that? That's the intent of this verse. I mean, you have to ask yourself at some point, where are you? Are you rejoicing in the fact that you're chosen by God, or are you still outside of God and you're doomed by God? Do you have access to God, or are you separated from God? Are you identified with God, or are you an enemy of God's? Are you treasured by God, or are you rejected by God? It's a good time right now to just remind you that if you find yourself right now, as you hear the words of my mouth, doomed, separated, an enemy, and rejected by God, that that can change right now, this morning, because of God's mercy. Because you're hearing this. You can say, Lord, I don't, 
I see it now. I want to call you father. I want access to you as a son. I want to be identified with you by name. And I want to be treasured by you. That's all possible because of the finished work of Jesus Christ. The perfect life he lived, you can get credit for. The death he died, he died for the sin of everyone who will believe. And he works in their heart. Hmm. Maybe today's the day you need to come to Christ and place your faith in him. Turn from your sin and confess him as Lord. Are you loved like this? But you, the whole intent of verse 9 is this contrast. Actually, if you think about it, this contrast helps explain your persecution, doesn't it? It makes sense. Back then in 2023, people attack us because they don't fit in with us, so to speak. Or as John Stott put it years ago, persecution is simply the clash between two irreconcilable value systems. He's right. So you've got to ask the question. You have to ask the question. Why so little persecution today? I think Bodhi Bakum is right when he says, you know, suffering is common for all. However, persecution, which is a form of suffering, can be avoided. All you have to do is compromise. And he's right. Sometimes we suffer because we're being, I think the Greek word is jerks. Notice we can be that way with our t-shirts and our snarky comments with our thumbs and fingers. Pastor Kent Hughes preached these words to his own congregation in Wheaton a long time ago. He said, Christians are often persecuted not for their Christianity, but for their lack of it. Sometimes they simply have unpleasant personalities. They are rude, insensitive, thoughtless, piously obnoxious, Some are rejected because they are discerned as proud and judgmental. Others are disliked because they are lazy and irresponsible. Either arrogance or incompetence mixed with piety is sure to bring rejection. He's right. Sometimes it's good to stick out. It brings with it privileges. It sets up an amazing contrast. But the second privilege is this. It lays out a clear mission. It lays out a clear mission. Look at verse 9 again. It says, so that. See that in the middle of the verse? This is explaining why he's using the descriptions that were true for the nation. Nothing's changed for God's people today in the church. Here's the reason. So that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. This is a, it says, so that you may proclaim the excellencies or the praises. Some of your translations even says, even say virtues. This word is only used four times, three other times in the Greek New Testament. And, and, and this is how you would talk. Listen, this particular word excellencies is the way you would talk about a human hero. It's the things you'd want to point out. When I, was, when I was eight years old, I was all about Spider-Man. He was my guy. I mean, Superman could fly. 
and that was a problem, okay? But Spider-Man, I mean, the, the bite from the radioactive spider, and he could, he could spin webs, he could climb up walls, he could see thousands of miles, and he could jump to the next state, okay? What have I just done? I've told you the excellencies of the mythical, the fake, better yet, Spider-Man. I'm pointing out who he is and what he did. This word was used in that day to point out on a human level heroes, who they were and what they did. But when it comes to using this word and applying it to deity, it's telling who the deity is and describing the great manifestations of that God's power. And Peter's taking that word and using it with his people and how their lives, when they live in a conflicted, contrasted, fallen world, are to draw attention to who God is and what he has done. You are not saved to blend in. You were not saved to hide from the world. You are not saved to go at this alone. You, plural, were saved, listen, to be part of a local and a global redeemed people with the sole purpose of broadcasting who God is and what God is doing. Period. No more nuance needed. You are saved for that purpose. <laughs> you know what this privilege does, this clear mission? This mission will embrace the persecution. You say, well, how can you say that? Well, as the persecuted or rejected Christian, you are the center of attention now. Make the most of the spotlight. Everyone's looking. Everyone's listening. And you have a story to tell of a God that we've been learning about in all through chapter 1 and thus far into chapter 2. A God who, who calls you. Even before you had ears to hear, He calls you, opens your ears, and you, you find yourself moved out of the domain of darkness and now wide awake and alive in His marvelous light. Yeah, that's your mission. That's your mission. But there's one more privilege. Here's one more privilege. Not only the contrast, not only the mission, but number three, this is a privilege. It holds down a needed reminder. It holds down a needed reminder. It keeps it anchored in your heart. Because you and I need reminders about where we stand and who we are. Look at verse 10. Peter circles back around. Four. You once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And he's quoting from the prophet Hosea here. Again, using language towards the nation and showing the parallel. Not a replacement. Hmm. You know, by the time you get to this third privilege, the persecution makes perfectly good sense. It's stark outside of the redeemed in any culture. It's stark, but inside, it's brilliant and full of light. Kind of sounds like Colossians 1.13, that he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, 
And the next verse says, where we find forgiveness. You know, as I look at that verse 10, I'm reminded of two things. Your life is not defined by your circumstances, but by your calling. Who has called you? God. Because he's called you, what do you call him? Father. Your life is not defined by your suffering, but by your calling. And secondly, your, your affections are not fueled by your suffering, but by your story of rescue. You and I keep the gospel in our mind, which is all verse 10 is. It's a rehearsing of the gospel yet again. We keep the gospel in our mind. Listen, the gospel will eclipse the persecution. It sure will. So, sticks and stones may break my bones, but names will only embolden me. You're called the chosen people. This speaks to great privilege. It transforms you from a pessimist to an optimist. He sets up an amazing contrast. He lays out a clear mission, and he holds down a needed reminder. So your persecution in these two verses has been explained, embraced, and eclipsed, just like that. Amy Carmichael has an interesting question for us. Hast thou no scar, no hidden scar on foot or side or hand? I hear thee sung as mighty in the land. I hear them hail thy bright ascending star. Hast thou no scar? Or John Bunyan, and I close with these words. The author of The Pilgrim's Progress, who himself was writing from prisons and suffering. Listen to this guy. Therefore... I bind these lies and slanderous accusations to my person as an ornament. It belongs to my Christian profession to be vilified, slandered, reproached, and reviled. And since all this is nothing but that, as God and my conscience testify, I rejoice in being reproached for Christ's sake. Father, we hear these words from John Bunyan. And we rehearse just these two verses, one short paragraph in this argument of chapter 2. And we find ourselves suddenly able to explain why we are persecuted, why we must embrace that persecution, and how you and your kindness give us something more glorious to focus on that eclipses this persecution. It doesn't make it go away. As a matter of fact, as the time moves on, it's going to intensify. But there's always going to be something more big and more glorious. And it's the gospel. The gospel we didn't deserve when we were not your people. But you came for us in your mercy. The gospel that found us in darkness while we were dead and transferred us to the kingdom of your dear son. So Lord, what a high privilege we have to be called your chosen people. And I pray for those in our midst today or under the sound of my voice who still find them in a 
themselves in a place of being doomed by God, separated from you, an enemy of yours, and rejected by you. I pray you'll open their eyes to see and to believe and to repent and to run to you, Lord. So they too can be called chosen and have access and be identified with you and treasured by you. Do it, Lord, by your spirit. In Jesus' name we pray.